Good evening, church. That wasn't good enough. I need to know you're there. Good evening, church. Thank you. Thank you. It is, uh, it is an unusual hour on a Friday night for us to be gathered in this kind of setting. But we want to anticipate what the Lord wants to say to us. And we want to be sensitive to his voice. Not just what I'm doing here, but what you're doing there. As you're listening and uh, open to whatever he has to say to you at this particular moment in your life. And so this is a sacred time, a holy time. And we want to be alert. There's a verse we're going to look at the very end. We're going to take some time to pray together. I'm not going to put you in groups. This will be individual prayer. And we're going to look at some scriptures at the very end. The very last scripture we're going to read is found. You don't need to turn there right now, but it's found in Psalm 46. I just want you to hear what David writes. God is our refuge and strength. Is he your refuge and strength? A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Just before the service began, about an hour beforehand, Gail and I began getting messages and reports that the church that I had served four and a half years ago before I took my present assignment in Wynn, Arkansas, was hit by a tornado. And there's a very dangerous line of storms moving through Arkansas, Missouri, and Iowa, and Kentucky, Tennessee this evening. And But, but this town, about 8,000 people where we served for six years, was hit. And so the pictures that we were seeing, and of course our first concern, we wanted to know how the church was, was anyone that we knew, were they hurt, how are the pastors of the church, different staff, how are they? As far as we know, none of the pastors or their families were harmed at this point. That's still just beginning. And then someone sent us a picture of our home where, that we had built while we were there, home that we never intended to sell, and it took two years before the Lord released us from that bondage of that house, but it finally sold. But, but they showed us the destruction of that home. And it just was breaking our hearts when we thought of the people and the time and, and the years and the ministry and all that those places represented. He promises to you and to me to be a very present help in trouble. He does not promise to remove you from trouble. And in that sense, his presence then becomes your refuge and your source of strength. I'd like us to pray together before we begin tonight and truly to invite him to increase our awareness of his presence among us this evening. Father, we are grateful to you for the opportunity we had to worship just now, to bring to our mind all the many different ways in which you have blessed us, rescued us, and in ways beyond our comprehension, did things that you didn't have to do. You adopted us, and you have called us your own. And Father, as, as these dear ones gather here, I think of the dear ones that you led us to serve for so many years and all of the emotions and the feelings that they're experiencing right now. And Father, I ask that you would enable them, as this psalm says, to be still in the midst of the storm, to be still and know that you are God. And in a group this size, Lord, I, I expect that there's someone experiencing a storm tonight in their heart. And you have promised to be our refuge and our source of strength. And may that dear one this evening, in a very real and needed way, experience the reality of this truth. 
For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight. Uh, the title of this message is The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. I, I serve churches. That's what I do. For 10 years, I served the churches of Arkansas, 1,500 churches, uh, Southern Baptist churches, and then I pastored. And then now I serve in the North Shore across from the South Shore, which is what some people call it New Orleans. And so we serve on the North Shore across from New Orleans. And there are 90 churches that I serve in that, in that context. And so I spend most of my time with church leaders and, and with pastors. And there are times where over the years I have been in church services and people would say, it was just great. The Lord was here today, wasn't he? And they would make statements like that. And I'm, and I'm thinking, and it's just in passing, and I'm thinking, does this person mean what they're saying? Do they understand what they're saying? And so I want to talk to you tonight about the presence of God in your, in your prayer life and how very much that is to be a priority when we pray. And so to begin that, I want to look at two passages of Scripture. And one ultimately leads to the theme of our conference this weekend, to keep on asking. But at the end of Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, we read a familiar passage. It starts this way. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her, To help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. And so our focus tonight is on the presence of God as your first priority in prayer. That's what I want us to give attention to, that when you pray, his presence is your starting point. That's the beginning. And and so why? Why do we need to talk about this? Why is this important in a prayer conference to talk about the starting point being the very presence of God? Well, let me give you three reasons quickly. First, the Father desires fellowship with you. Do you know this? The Father desires fellowship with you. We know this because the entire storyline of Scripture, the entire narrative, the controlling narrative of Scripture, is the Father's desire to dwell among His people. We see it in the garden, in what most scholars believe was His customary walking in the garden in the evening. And when sin entered the picture, Adam and Eve hiding from Him. But He was seeking their presence. Where are you? He knew where they were. But where are you? And and then moving to the, the patriarchs, and He would appear to them. And then... The era of the tabernacle where God delivered his people out of Egypt. And over and over again, as this elaborate system was put in place, we discover it was put in place because God wanted to be present among his people. He wanted to come and dwell among his people. And so the entire design of the tabernacle was to facilitate that desire of the heart of God. And, and they put that tabernacle where? Right in the middle of Israel. Right in the middle of the camp. The temple continues this idea, this passion of the Father that he wants to be where his people are and to dwell among his people. Ultimately, this is fulfilled when Jesus comes in the flesh. God made man, Emmanuel, God with us. And and he comes and walks among us, but he doesn't stay, does he? He 
He, we know the life of story. We, we read the Gospels. And he now has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But what does he do? He sends his Spirit to come and live inside of us. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so he sends his Holy Spirit, who is the presence of God, to live inside every Christian. And so the very presence of God, what he has desired all along, is now reality for every Christian in this room, everyone that knows him. And then we read about the culmination of this story of Scripture when we come to the end of Revelation and this new Jerusalem is revealed and the tabernacle, the presence of God is dwelling among his people. And so and so, why do we talk about <clears throat> the presence of God as a first priority of prayer? Because the Father desires fellowship with you. When he taught the, the, the model prayer, the pattern for prayer, he begins right here. Our Father, he says, start here, start with this relationship. Start with who you are in relationship to him and who he is in relationship to you. Don't breeze past that point. Take time there. Recognizing who he is and who you are in this relationship. In Matthew 6, verse 6, we have this teaching of Jesus where he taught the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. But prior to that, he talks about the Pharisees and how they pray to be seen by men on the street corners. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. And, and, and at first, it's, it's clearly a radically different way of praying than the Pharisees were praying, for sure. But he was saying something very clear and very profound to you and me. That is that he wants to be alone with you. He wants to be alone with you. If you're out praying on the street just so people can hear you, it's not about you and him. But if you go in your room where no one can see, no one can hear, it's just you and him, that's what he wants. That's what he desires. So the Father desires fellowship with you. The, the second reason this should be our first priority is that Jesus, Jesus taught us to focus first on his presence. And I've already mentioned that when he said, our, our Father. Don't rush past that. The third thing. We're always in danger of losing our first love. And if we don't start prayer in the right place, if we don't start with this recognition of him as our father and his presence with us, we are in danger of losing our first love. We pray about everything else. We pray about everything we need, what everybody else needs. But he is, he is wanting us to start in this particular place. Otherwise, we lose our first love. In Ephesians, uh, Revelation chapter 2, in the letter to the Ephesian people, the Ephesian church, they're described not as a passive group. They're very active in ministry. I mean, most of us would just be delighted with their church. They're, they're doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and they're not growing weary. That's what he says. He says, but you have left your first love. And then he tells them to repent. And go back and do the first works. Well, the first works are not all this ministry activity. Because he's already referred to that. And if that was what took you back to your first love, well, he, you know, we wouldn't have a problem. No, it's not the ministry activity is not the first works. The first works are those starting places where it's just you and him and you are enjoying him and worshiping him and praising him and having communion with him and fellowship with him. And abiding in this wonderful relationship with him. And, and this, is, this is the great problem, I can say, from my experience in the American church. Is that we have left our first love. You don't lose your first love. John says, you left it. You left it. We have churches that are so focused on the organization of the church and they are concerned with the organizational survival of the church and making sure that it's successful and bumping the numbers and getting the offerings in and building the building so that we can continue ministry in the name of Jesus and continue the Great Commission. But in all of that, Jesus is no longer the head. Jesus is no longer building the church. And the church as a whole, as a unit, as an organization, has left their first love. They're doing things in the name of Jesus. So was the church in Ephesus. But they were missing out on the very thing, the first priority 
in your life as a believer is to have this fellowship with your Father. And so this is why we're focusing on this tonight. Why would we keep asking? Why would, why would that be our theme? Why would we keep on asking? This is the first answer to why we keep asking. He wants us to keep coming to him and having fellowship with him. And if you're ignoring him, dear one, one of the ways I know from Scripture and from experience that he's going to get you coming back to him, see, let's all the, let your house get hit by a tornado. And when, you're, when, you're, when your need is great enough, you're coming back to him. And, and so he will allow things to come into our life so that we will turn to him with a greater intensity and, and a greater focus upon him. So, and we see this, I think, um, we mentioned the people of Israel earlier in Exodus thirty-three fifteen, after the great sin of Israel, worshiping the golden calf, the idolatry, the unfaithfulness to the father, Moses intercedes for them. And then he, the, the father says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. I'm not going to leave you. My presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And this, this is what Moses says. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. I don't know where you are in the life of your church. But is that the governing principle of your church? Is it everything rises and falls on leadership? How many leaders do we have? Has, has my church been infected by all of these disciplines of secular business, organizational development, organizational metrics? Or do we realize that everything rises and falls on the presence of God? And so in relation, related to my prayer life and your prayer life, there, there are just four things I want to say tonight. And then I want us to take some time to just right where you are, for, to allow you time to talk to the Lord about this. Well, here's the first thing I want to say. You can live your life as a Christian without being aware of the presence of the Father. You can live your life as a Christian without being aware of the presence of the Father. In the passage we read from Genesis, uh, did I read the passage? I didn't read the passage from Genesis. Ah, huh. Well, I'm having a birthday in a month. And that explains why I didn't read the passage in Genesis. Let me read from Genesis 28, please. Genesis 28. This is a story of Jacob running from home. He has tricked his dad in stealing his brother's birthright. And he can't stay there. Esau wants to kill him. And so his father sends him away. And he's out in the wilderness. He's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's actually a place in the prophets where it's, God says he... He came to him as a howling wilderness. He was just lost. He was out in the middle of nowhere. And in the midst of that moment where he's by himself and he's out in the middle of nowhere, it says in Genesis 28, verse 10, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And uh, before I keep reading, um, let me just remind you that most of us have been, unfortunately, influenced by a Western worldview of reality. A Western worldview of reality limits reality to the things I can sense, see, touch, smell, hear, measure in some way. And is very skeptical of things that I cannot see unless I can demonstrate its reality, its presence. But yet the majority of the scripture defines reality not just in terms of what we can see but also in terms of what we can't see. Our Father who's in heaven is saying, my Father who's in a place I cannot see. 
And that this place I cannot see dramatically affects what I do see. And so reality for the believer, for the Christian, is with a big R, includes both what we can see, but also what we cannot see. And going further, we believe that this realm that I can't see is actually more significant because it dramatically affects what I do see. In fact, the early Christians were taught, if then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where you can't see, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And so this is what's happening to Jacob. He is getting a glimpse of a realm he cannot see normally. It's happening in a dream. And and we think of heaven sometimes as way up there, <laughs> when in fact, heaven is here. But But we cannot see or comprehend or connect with this realm I cannot see unless the Father, in His grace, gives us that perception. Like Elisha with a serpent. Oh, Lord, open His eyes that He can see. The truth about our circumstances. Yes, we're surrounded. But when the Lord opened that servant's eyes, what did he see? Chariots of fire (laughs) surrounding them. And that was reality. That was the truth about their circumstances. And that's what we need. And that's why we go in prayer. But Jacob was just running. He wasn't really thinking about God. He goes to sleep and he has this amazing vision. In verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now watch this. Jacob gets up. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. You can live your entire life and not be conscious of the presence of God. Now, those of you who are, who are, who are serious-minded theologians, you know that the Bible teaches that God is everywhere. There's no place I can go where he is not. And and so that means that God is here, right? And we know that with our head. I can understand that from the scripture. But there's a difference in knowing that he is here with my head and being aware of his presence with my heart. And so what happened to Jacob in that moment is that God removed the barriers for a moment. And he was exposed to something of the presence of God. And he heard the voice of God. And, and it changed the course of his life. It took a long time with Jacob. But it changed the course of his life. So, so that's the first thing that I would want you to realize. Is that it's a possibility that the Lord is in this place. And you can be totally oblivious to it. Oblivious to him. And unaware. And, and dear one, I don't at all for a moment think that's the way that you and I are called to live our believing life. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He carried your sins away. He united you with Christ for a reason. That you might know him. That you might know him. The second thing I would say about the presence of God in your prayer life is this. The Father wants to awaken you to his presence. The Father wants you to know His presence, to be aware of His presence. And this can happen individually in your time alone with Him. It can happen corporately when a group comes together. Just over a month ago, myself and about 20,000 of my closest friends descended on Wilmore, Kentucky. As a revival broke out on the campus of Asbury University, Asbury Seminary. And in a chapel service that they had three times a week... Uh, most of the students had been dismissed. A few asked if they could stay and continue to worship, and they did. About a dozen to 20 students remained. One young man got up, just felt compelled, overcome with a sense of God's presence, and he confessed some sin. He publicly repented of sin. He humbled himself 
And if you know anything about the Scripture, when someone humbles themselves, there is grace. And, and soon, the whole atmosphere in the room changed. And it was exciting. And, and they began texting one another. Students in class were getting texts from students in the auditorium saying, you've got to get over here. Something is taking place. And they recognized something had changed. They didn't fully understand it. Some did, some didn't. And, uh, and soon there were 200 students, and they stayed there day and night for two and a half weeks, worshiping the Lord, reading Scripture, sharing messages of truth. Well, the word got out. That happened on a Wednesday, February 8th. I heard about it the next day in Louisiana. And, um, and I was there Saturday night with, with some friends and, and just enjoyed and rejoiced and experienced as God worked not only in the lives of those who were there, but he worked in my own heart as well. And... Um, And there are just things that he does when he exposes you and me to his heart. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. But there are things he does to us. They're just the natural outcome, supernatural outcome, of being exposed to, to a holy God. His presence. And so there's, there's omnipresence, knowing that God is everywhere with my head, but there's this presence. Some scholars use the word manifest presence. Where God makes himself, in a real way, known to the hearts of his people. So the Father wants to awaken you to his presence. And the third thing I would say is that you will be transformed and affected by his presence. You will be transformed and affected by his presence. A verse I shared with the students this morning from Acts 3.19 comes from a sermon that Peter was preaching on the steps of the temple of Jerusalem when he had been used to heal a lame man who was walking around and praising God, and people wanted an explanation, and so he began to preach. And in the course of that sermon in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out or rubbed out, so that, for this purpose, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not one time, but times plural. Where does it come from? From his presence. He doesn't say, Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so you can go to heaven when you die. He talks about something more immediate, something more right now. And, and it's not continuous necessarily, but it's your birthright as a believer that there are these moments where he, in order to accomplish his purpose in your life, and particularly in your prayer life, he wants you to know him and he wants to awaken you to his presence. You say, well, how do you know when that's happening? Well, you'll know. But if you can just imagine with me for just a moment, and there's scripture for all of this, suddenly being exposed to an absolutely beautiful king of glory, majesty, authority, holy. You and I are not that. When, uh, when I used to travel for the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, I used to, they supplied me with a vehicle. One of those cars was kind of cool because I had this, these keys in my pocket. Whenever I got close to the car at night, the lights would come on inside the car. So in the presence of my keys, the car responded. I thought that was cool. The presence of my keys, the car responded. In the presence of God, there are things that happen to you and me. And we read about them in Scripture, and I'm not going to give you the, the, the Scriptures on each of these. I'll be happy to talk with you privately about it if it's a concern to you. But love, not just knowing His love, but experiencing His love. I can say that many, if not most of those who were at Asbury, experienced something of the sweetness of His love. His tender heart that we so easily grieve. And becoming aware that we have grieved his heart. There is a godly sorrow, a sorrow with reference to God that, that can erupt in our heart. 
in reference to that. Love. Awe. 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 Awe has a way of riveting your attention on him. If um, I've used this illustration so many times, I don't know if I've used it here, but it's if Colin and I were visiting a, a zoo and there was a place where they kept all the big lions and tigers and panthers. And I go in there and he's just not impressed. This guy talks funny. South America, South, South Africa. And, and I said, look at those cats. They are huge. Look at their teeth, their big teeth. They're scary looking things. He says, eh. He's not impressed. And I'm a little put out with him. So before he knows what I'm doing, I reach over, I open the cage, and I push Colin in the cage, and I close the door. Now what does he think about the cats? Well, now he's in the presence of the cat. Now he is in awe of the cat. There is a fear of the cat. His intention, attention is completely riveted on the cat. He doesn't care about what's happening outside the cage. He only cares about what's happening in the presence of the cat. You see? And when the Lord manifests his presence, that happens to us. Our attention is completely riveted on him. Repentance. And I've already mentioned that. We begin to recognize what we have done to the heart of God, how we have grieved his heart. And it produces a godly, a godly sorrow in us. Uh, some people are affected physiologically. We've seen this in church history. We see it in scripture in the presence of God. They can't even stand. They fall on their faces. In Revelation 1, verse 17, John sees the glory of a risen Jesus and he falls on his face like a dead man. And so there can be physical effects that we see in various encounters that people have. There can be peace. Just a supernatural peace. And God doesn't give peace as a little package. He is our peace. And so when he manifests himself, some people experience peace. Joy. Exuberant joy. The last verse in Psalm 16, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand pleasures forevermore. Joy. And uh, sometimes there's healing. Deliverance. There were students testifying to how God was dealing with sin in their life. With obsessions in their life. With lifelong battles and struggles with different things. Anxiety, fear, worry. When you're in the presence of the king, you're going to feel safe. And it can change your whole perspective. Another word I would use is timelessness. He inhabits eternity, according to Isaiah 57. He inhabits eternity. Eternity means time doesn't matter anymore. And you can imagine if heaven opens up and you are not exposed to something of the presence of God, that would happen to us. It does. People don't care about eating anymore, sleeping, drinking. They're just not, they don't want to leave. People who left the building in Asbury, they didn't go very far, but they wanted to go back. They wanted to get back as quickly as they could. They wanted to be there because of what they were recognizing in terms of the presence of God. D.L. Moody in 1871 talks about a moment in his own prayer life, and this is what happens when he comes and meets with us. And I'll, I'll, I'll clarify this in a moment. But he said, I seldom refer to it. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand, to stop it. I did not, uh, I went to preaching again after that experience. He said, the sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. D.L. Moody, a preacher, a pastor, became D.L. Moody the evangelist after his encounter with the presence of God. Timelessness. One of my favorite revivals to talk about is the Welsh Revival, 1904-1906. 100,000 people came to faith in Christ in the space of 10 months. One of my favorite stories about that event was found in the London Times, January 3rd, 1905. A secular reporter who's not a Christian goes and, and visits one of the chapels when Evan Roberts was preaching and when worship was taking place. This is what he writes. Listen, 
It is long past midnight. Now here, now there, someone rises to make his confession and lay bare his record before the people or falls upon his knees where he is and in loud and fervent tones prays for forgiveness. Still unwearied, the people sing. Hymns seem the only adequate channel for expressing their joy and thankfulness. It sounds incredible, but this succession of prayer, of address, of confession, of singing, went on from 7 o'clock at night until 3 o'clock in the morning. Most amazing of all was the endurance of the men and women. There they were through all those long hours, eager and earnest to the last, as if wrestling for life with an unseen power. At three o'clock, the hooters sounded from the distant colliery. That's the coal mines. And there was the blast of the horn calling them back to work. Whether this or mere physical exhaustion brought them back from the world of timelessness. That's a lost man writing that. I could not tell. Soberly and reverently, they went out into the morning air, eager as themselves. Many of the colliers, I know, had only time for a wash and breakfast and were at the colliery to join the morning shift timelessness all markers all these are just markers and we see them in scripture when god makes his presence known to us we're in the presence of the holy god and it affects us so jacob runs from home and he has this encounter with the presence of god and he grew up in a praying household he really did his grandfather had sent a servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. The servant prayed, oh God. And he prayed in such a way, God, if you would do this, help me find this, this, this woman. And, he, and through this, his prayer, a very specific prayer, he meets Rebecca. And when he realizes who she is, that she's the right one, the Bible says he fell down and he worshipped. And he did it again. It's like every time God answered his prayer, his first reaction was to fall down and worship. That was just the servant in Abraham's house. Just the servant. So Rebecca agrees to go with him and they're traveling. And when they get close to where Isaac is, Isaac is, it's in the evening. Isaac is out in the field. The Bible says meditating. What do you think that means? Just, just thinking about God. Just praying, talking to him. Later, after their marriage, Rebecca was, was unable to have children. The Bible says that Isaac prayed for his wife, interceded for his wife, and she got pregnant with twins. And Esau and Jacob in her womb were fighting, struggling, and she didn't know what to do about it. So she went and inquired of the Lord. She asked the Lord. She prayed. This was Jacob's environment. Now, they weren't perfect parents, as we know from the rest of the story. But they prayed. They knew something of the presence of God. But Jacob didn't. And Jacob's not recorded as praying. He wasn't praying when God revealed himself to him. He wasn't praying when he went to Jacob and he worked all those years for not one wife but two. Bless him. And, and, um, and, and when it was time to leave, God appeared to him. And Jacob is living off of anxiety. His whole life is about worry and fear. And we see this over and over again with Jacob. I got to make it happen. I got to take care of it. I got to fix it. But before he leaves Laban, God appears to him and reiterates his promises to him and seeks to assure him and comfort him in his, in his appearance to him. And, and, um, and so Jacob hears him and he does what he says and he leaves. And, um, and it's a marvelous story. And I, I can't tell the whole story, but. But he had made this vow when God first appeared to him in Bethel when he was running away from home. And God fulfilled the, the vow. God did everything. Jacob said, if you will feed me and you will clothe me and you will take care of me, I'm going to come back here and you'll be my God. And, and all the time he prays, when he does say something to God, he talks about the God of my father, Abraham, the God of my father, Isaac, but he never calls him his God. And he finally goes through this experience where he wrestles just before he encounters Esau on his way home. He wrestles with what most scholars believe is a pre-incarnate encounter with Jesus. And he wrestles with him. He wrestles with him. He's afraid. 
He thinks Esau's going to destroy him, kill him. And the man he's wrestling says, let me go. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He says, what's your name? He says, Jacob. He said, your name is not Jacob anymore, it's Israel. Which means he turned the head of God. Got God's attention. Your name's Israel. Most of the time when God changed someone's name, they started using the new name. Jacob is still Jacob. Israel's not used a whole lot. But he finally comes back home and he, he survives the encounter with Esau and he builds an altar. And when he, when he builds this altar to God, recognizing that God has fulfilled his promise, he's going to fulfill his, he names the altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. For the first time, he says, he's my God. And so what I want you to see through this, just very simply, is that Jacob illustrates that his presence meets you where you are, but he's not going to leave you where you are. And so, where are you tonight? You say, well, I'm in this building in uh, the base of Paris Mountain. But where are you? In relationship to the Lord, where are you? What's happening in your life? What are your needs? What are your wounds? What are your struggles? What are your hidden things? The dark places that you don't want anyone else to see. Where are you? And what happens when the Lord meets us in this way, and our awareness of Him, a gift, is such that we, we are aware of His presence, is that He meets us in that place. He is loving and tender and gentle and amazing, and He is calling us to Himself, and He does whatever it takes to address us where we are. This is one of the things I, I saw at Asbury. You know, one of the, the administrators there told me that the top two issues that they encounter with their students, and he said they've been with meetings with other university leadership around the country, secular and Christian, and they have the same problems at Caltech that they have at Asbury. And he said the, the two top things that they, they are finding with this millennial generation over and over again that, that are so difficult to address, so difficult that colleges and universities are spending five times more of their budget on counseling services than they are in admissions. The first one, porn addiction. Porn addiction. He pulled his phone out and he said, no other generation has had a porn store in their pocket. And, and it can so impact the students that they can't study, they can't stay on campus. If you're going to do student retention, you have to address those things, he was saying. The other one, anxiety or some form of emotional, mental distress that was debilitating and caused the student to have a, such a difficult time. Many of them couldn't stay on the campus. Anxiety, worry, fear, depression. And, and so this move of God occurs on the campus. So what does the Lord do? He meets them where they are. And the testimonies that you begin to hear from students. I remember one young lady in particular, she said, I have struggled all my life with worry and anxiety and fear. And then the Lord met with me and delivered me. And for day one, I, I, for the first time, I didn't have any of those feelings. Day two, I didn't have any of those feelings. She said on day six, some of those feelings began to come back. But she said, I immediately knew it wasn't the same. Because I had encountered him. He's the king. And those feelings were no longer in control. And they were no longer my master. Because she encountered him. And so Jacob illustrates that. God met Jacob where he was. Immature, selfish, carnal, grasping, engineer mentality. i got to fix it. Anything, I can do it. 
The second thing that happens is not only when he meets with us is it kind of a place of salvation and wholeness and shalom, but it's also how he sends us into the purpose he has for our life. God has a plan for your life. A mission. And he's, he has his redemption purposes that are running right now through the history of our country, right through the school, and it can run right through your life. That's, that's where his plan for you, it just brings you right into what he's doing. And I cannot improve on the plan that he has for me. I can't make it any better. He's not saying, Don, come up with a good plan for your life. He's not doing that. And what we discover in his presence is that my life has meaning and there's a trajectory, there's a direction, there's a way through what's happening in my life where he wants to deploy me into his work so that he can use me to help see others come to know him, to see others set free, to see others healed and ministered to according to their needs. And so Jacob is the illustration of this. Fourth thing, last thing I want to say, is that God has promised that he will draw near to you if you will draw near to him. You heard that before? That's actually in the Bible. In James chapter 4. And so, in the context of that passage, it's, it's uh, addressed to Christians, a group of Christians, who are fighting And I'm thinking James was writing to a Baptist church. Seems like I deal with that a lot. And so they were fighting. And they had these selfish desires. And when they did pray, it was so they could achieve their selfish ends. It's kind of like, oh God, let me win. Make them lose. And they were so carnal, so worldly in their mindset that they had no real affection for the Lord. They had left their first love. And he says, the Spirit yearns jealously for them. He said, but there's a grace that can change everything. He said, he said, God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. And he tells them to humble themselves, submit themselves to God. And then he says, draw near to God, y'all. Second person, plural. And God will draw near to y'all. And he goes on and he talks about cleansing your hands and he talks about purifying your heart and talks about lamenting and, you know, this, set your joy aside. This is not trivial. This is not a laughing thing. This is not a light thing. He says, you need to come to a place where you humble yourself before God. Just like the guy who stood before the Lord, the Pharisee was recounting how wonderful he was. But the guy before the Lord was saying, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that Pharisee, didn't go home justified, but that man did. Because he humbled himself. He humbled himself before me, before the Lord. And so he desires to draw near to us if we will draw near to him. So practically, just a couple of things. What does it mean to draw near to the Lord? Well, I think the first thing that we have to deal with is just the raw truth. We have to trust His Word. Trust what He says. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. Now in that first phrase, without faith it is impossible to please Him, suggests that you would want to please Him. Doesn't it? So if I'm going to please him, faith is going to be involved. For he who comes to God, okay, we're talking about drawing near. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He's here. Must believe that he is. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you're diligently seeking him, what's the reward? Him. Him. He's the reward. So when I say take it by faith, I'm not, I'm not denying the experiential dimension of encountering the presence of God. 
I'm just saying that there are seasons of refreshing, times of refreshing. That may not be your experience every time you turn to pray. That doesn't mean you're absent the presence of God. In Psalm 16, verse 8, David writes, have, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now see what David does. I have set the Lord always before me. That's like taking this and saying, I am setting it right here. I'm setting it here. I've set the Lord always before me. I can't maneuver an almighty, infinite God who is spirit. But that's not what David's saying, is it? He's saying that in my heart, when I pray, and approaching him as if he is right here. And so I'm going to talk to him as if he was right here. This is not imagination. This is faith. And I'm going to act like he's listening to every word I say. And that becomes a starting point. I'm believing. I'm trusting. And and you don't have to wait on some phenomenal experience. The experiences are amazing. And I do believe that that person who is genuinely seeking him is going to encounter his manifest presence. He has promised this. That's another sermon. But he's promised it. But you don't need to, to, to be jammed up in your prayer life saying, well, I don't feel anything today. In fact, I don't feel really great at all. Go to do what David says. Lord, I am trusting that you are here. And I'm going to talk to you like you are here. And the last thing I would say is simply that in this journey of drawing near to the Lord, to expect him to remove every obstacle to your intimacy with him. The James 4 passage suggests this. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. What does that look like? It's talking about cleansing of the hands. It's talking about submitting to him. It's talking about humbling yourself before him. It's talking about purifying your heart. But let me tell you what's going to happen. If you're seeking him, drawing near to him, more he draws near to you, the more that's going to change you. Because if you're sincere and you want to draw near to him, his, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow night, but his holiness is going to light up the sinfulness in your life. Just like he did for Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw the holy, holy, holiest of, of manifestations of Jesus before he walked the earth. And, and he said, woe is me. Exposed to the holiness of God, he realized, man, I have been walking around with all of these obstacles and barriers and offenses to this to my God. I've known some men and women I've spent time with who would come to me as their pastor, as a friend, who would be so overwhelmed by their encounter with God that they would wonder whether they were even saved because His holiness was lighting up so much sin in their life. It's just discouraging to them. I said, no, 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 no. This is good. This is good. He loves you. He's not going to leave you where you are. He's going to address these things in your life. And he's going to set you free. He's going to set you free. One of the problems I encounter with people in ministry has to do with their approach to purity. I saw it all the time when I was on the road in Arkansas. At least once a week, Colin, I would get a call. Our office would get a call. And there would be another moral failure of some sort in a church. Embezzlement. Molestation. Affairs. And it would shock everyone because this pastor or this minister or this church leader that was involved, everyone had no idea that they could be capable of something like that. And, and when you talk to some people in, in kind of a debriefing of these people who fall, 
you discover that there was something happening in their understanding of what it means to be pure and holy that was false. Because there is a kind of professional purity where you and I, as far as everybody else is concerned, we're doing simply enough of the right thing so that we can keep our job. And that is not drawing near to God. But when we draw near to Him, my objective is Him, not purity. Not to look good to you. And so purity becomes a byproduct of the journey. That as I draw ever closer to Him, and He draws near to me, I am casting stuff overboard every time He puts His finger on it. Yes, Lord, I'm through with that. (laughs) We're done with that. And so that's where we become new people in this, in this journey. Not because we seek out to be holy in the eyes of men, but we are pursuing a holy God, and He changes everything. Nothing is the same when He draws near to us. We can't see life the same. We don't see people the same way. We don't see ourselves the same way. And what we're seeing is reality. The truth about who we are, the truth about our circumstances, and the truth about the world we live in. For the next few moments, I would just, you, you, can, you don't have to bow your head. You can. I'm going to simply put a scripture on the screen. I'm going to read it, and then we're just going to be still. And this is between you and him. Um, And as you hear that scripture, would you set him before you? Would you listen for his voice? Would you recognize not only the truth of that with your head, but you would say, Lord, would you make this real to my heart? So the first scripture, and when we're done, we're going to sing, and then we'll close. The first scripture, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand 
shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. John 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then David writes in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. 